Hello, everyone, and welcome, or maybe welcome back, to the Bob with the Smart Party Do, the UK's premier RPG podcast. I am one of your hosts, Gaz, and joining me from his shed of shenanigans down south is my good friend, Ben. Shed of shenanigans. <laughs> if those walls could talk, is that, that's all I'm going to tell our listeners. <laughs> yeah, now I'm going to be working on those now. Shed of shenanigans is good, but we're going to get a list of 10, which we'll put in the show notes for this one, okay? That's no problem. Cabin of curiosities. Yeah, <laughs> a nice table to roll on. And I'm not going to cast any kind of aspersions upon the uh, domicile of our special guest across the pond. It's one of our returning guests. It's Justin Alexander. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to be back. Lovely to have you. So you're writing a book, or you've written a book even. I've, I've written a book. If I had, if I hadn't finished it yet, we'd all be in great deals of trouble at this point. Yeah, it's not like Kickstarter. We won't have promised. Yeah, no. The, uh, the the professional book distributors actually expect you to give them the books to sell. So, oh, they're standards, don't they? Well, maybe after this one, you'll get advances, and then you can be a, a rake around Europe or something and spend all your advance money without writing. But you have written a book on advanced I have. games mastery. So do, do you want to tell us what's that, what that's about and what's in it? And then we'll get into some of the details, I guess, because we like yeah. talking about gaming more than anything. Yeah, so the book is called So You Want to Be a Game Master. And it's coming from Macmillan and Page Tree Publishing uh, in November. It comes out November 21st. And this is, for people who are familiar with my work over at the Alexandrian, uh, this is going to be the book you've been waiting for. It is going to have, it's just packed full of over 500 pages of advanced game mastering tips and tricks and all the lore that you've seen on the site plus a bunch of new stuff as well if you aren't familiar with the alexandrian and even if you have never gm'd a game before this book is as the title kind of suggests designed specifically as a step-by-step guide to take someone who's never GM'd before or perhaps never even played a role-playing game before and get them into the Game Master chair. Uh, I, have a, I have a very firm belief that the best way to become a great Game Master is to actually GM. And so, like I said, this is very much a step-by-step approach. This is very much a, not not a lot of like highfalutin, like here's some like cool advice, figure out how to use it. It's much more like, no, do one, two, three, four, and you will be a Game Master. It sounds good to have something like that that's a little bit procedural because the, the perennial evergreen question you see on the forums and Facebook groups and Discord and everything, you'll always get someone coming along and saying, I'm going to GM my first game this weekend. Has anyone got any advice? And then there's, I have much hilarity reading the advice, which is along the lines of just have fun, which is not advice, and <laughs> uh, various other things like that. So uh, I don't like to spoil your entire book, but can you give us like some flavor of kind of like y- your first steps or first bits of pieces that you might give people who are taking that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so this is a lot, in a lot of ways, this is the book that I wanted to have when I was 10 years old and trying to figure out how to run a role-playing game for the first time. Uh, it, it, because it has that step-to-step approach. I spent so much time as a new game master who hadn't, who didn't have anyone to play with. I was trying to like find a copy of the game and then figure out how to play from the game and then figure out how all of this was supposed to work. And so much of that ends up being, uh, you know, just just what what are the things you're supposed to do? Like if you read the rules for like a board game, right? Those rules for the board game tell you exactly what to do. But there are so many role playing games, including most editions of like Dungeons and Dragons, even that you you can read through all. 700 800 900 pages of core rule books for D and at the end of it still be like okay but like 
what do I do? So at the beginning of this book, the first thing I sit down and I say is, look, I, you know, there's a very brief introduction in case you literally have never played an RPG before. But then I do say, like, this this book is going to teach you how to GM. It's not going to teach you how to play D&D. Like, there are literally hundreds of pages of rules for that. Uh, so go pick up a starter set or go pick up a player's handbook and learn the rules of the game. I can't do that for you. But once you have those rules of whatever game it is you're choosing to do, and I should say too, uh, the book kind of assumes that Dungeons and Dragons is what most of the readers will be approaching the book form, but the book is not locked into D&D. It's, it's, it has broad applicability to any RPG you want to pick up. But I say, okay, great. You know how to, you know how to play the game now. You you have those sort of basic rules of understanding. Now this is how you this is how you become a dungeon master. And we're going to start with dungeons because I believe that a dungeon scenario is a really great fit for a beginning game master because the dungeon room is a firewall little capsule that is kept protected from the rest of the adventure. Like if I'm running a mystery or a conspiracy module, I have to keep kind of the whole the whole adventure in my mind. But if I'm running a dungeon, like a basic dungeon, I just have to think about the one room. And that's a lot easier to work with. So I say, let's start with that. And so I say, there's two things you need to know how to do in order to run a dungeon. And the first one is you know, need to know how to make a ruling so that when the players say to you, I want to do this, you can respond to, okay, then this happens. And the second thing you need to know to run a dungeon scenario, a basic dungeon scenario, is how to run a room. This is what the key to a room looks like, like a really good key to a room looks like. And this is how you use that key to respond to the questions and actions that the players suggest to you. And if you have those two parts, the ruling, knowing how to make a ruling and knowing how to run a room, then you are in a position where you can run a dungeon. And so at that point, this is about 30 to 40 pages into the book. I say, great, stop reading the book and go run a dungeon. And I actually do give them their first dungeon as well. It's a little dungeon adventure called uh, Mephits and Magmen. And I say, go run a dungeon. Just You have to get to the table, invite some people over, go play the game. Uh, and then come back here and we'll start building on what we have learned here. But part of the message I wanted to get across too is that so often, including the fact that D&D has like a 900 page set of rules you're supposed to read first, so often when people say, how do I become a game master? People are like, well, it's so complicated. It's so complex. It's so hard to do that. And I don't actually believe that's true. I, I have admittedly just written a 540 page book about being a game master, but I really want the message to be that like 30 pages in, I say, you have everything you need to go run the game. So do that. And then we can, we can expand from there. But actually just being a game master is, is really easy in some ways. Do you think uh, game mastering advice, well, it is advice, isn't it, at best? Has it ever been good? Has it fallen off or has it never been good? Well, I mean, it, there's a lot of game mastering advice out there. I'm, I'm putting in mind of like Theodore Sturgeon's uh, classic uh, statement about science fiction where he says, sure, like 90% of it is crap, but 90% <laughs> of everything is crap, except he used a stronger word than crap. <laughs> And and at the same, I mean, every ninety percent of everything is crap. Ninety percent of GMing advice is actually crap. There's actually a lot of GMing advice out there that comes from people who have never run a game. Mm -hmm. uh, and and once you've run a few games, you can spot that advice from a mile off, and you can go, "What what are we doing here? What, what why why are you trying to give advice on something you've literally never you've literally never done?" 
But there's a lot of really good GM advice out there. And when I say, you know, something I say in in promoting this book is like, it is like, I think the first true step-by-step guide to becoming a game master in in this sense. But that's not to be like other GMing books suck. There's a lot of really cool GMing advice out there. I just find that a lot of the GMing advice out there tends to take the form of like, here's a cool thing you can do to make like a really special villain, which is not bad advice. Having Mm. really special villains is cool. But if, if I'm sitting there trying to figure out what do I actually do at my first session? Making a super special villain is like, I don't know, like a dozen steps down the road. I got to figure out how to actually like run combat first, which is a, which is a chapter in this book is like, here's how you can be really effective at running combat. Yeah. And I guess if, if the advice that we've been seeing over the years and decades uh, is, is one of the reasons why you pick D and D is like the spine for your advice is because, and I guess this is a loaded question. Is it that the examples that Wizards of the Coast are generating at the moment are maybe not ideal for teaching you how to GM or holding your hand or whatever it is you need to do to get good at gaming? I, I see where you're trying to lead me, and and the answer is is yes. I mean, walk into my trap. Right, it is yes, and I don't think it's going to be a surprise that that I say yes there. Sure. And, and I should say too, I, I will prelude by saying so. The way the book works is the first section is about dungeons, and for that section, I I kind of like we're just going to assume D and D. We're going to keep it simple. But then for the rest of the book, I start talking about mysteries and raids and heists and urban crawls and social events and hex crawls and point crawls. And and more. And once I get into that section, which I move beyond the dungeon, I say, look, now you've run several dungeons. Let's move on to this extra stuff, this this more advanced stuff, these other options. Then I really be like, okay, now that I know you you know what's going on, I can talk about other options than just D and D, and not feel like I'm going to risk confusing somebody who just is literally trying to figure it out for the first mm-hmm. time. But to kind of cycle back to your actual question there about like, why is this book needed when the dungeon master's guide exists, right? Mm-hmm. And the the answer there is that D&D used to actually teach people how to run a dungeon, for example. And this goes all the way back to like 1974 when the first editions of D&D came out. And uh, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson in writing that book, if you, if you read the second volume in the 1974 edition of D&D, um, Underworld and Wilderness Adventures, uh, there's like three, four, five full pages that not only like here is exactly how you draw a dungeon map and here is exactly how you key a dungeon map. And here is an exact precise procedure that you can follow for running that dungeon. And then if you do that, you're, you're a dungeon master, you're running, you're running a game. And that, that tradition for D and D continued for a good long while. I know that for me personally, when I was trying to figure out how all of this worked, I I bounced around several different role-playing games before finally finding a copy of the 1983 basic set by Frank Menser for, for D&D. And that basic set did a really great job of, again, teaching you this is exactly how you prep a dungeon. This is how you run a dungeon. This is what you do at the table. This is how you run a game. But from that point forward, pretty much every edition of D&D has slowly sort of like atrophied away from that basic instructional approach. And dungeons are a classic example of this. Uh, as you, as you watch through the years, you begin getting editions where they they tell you how to make a dungeon map, but they don't tell you how to actually run the dungeon. Like, what is the thing you you got? You've got a map with numbers on it, and you have a key that describes the rooms. But what's the actual process that you use to like? What do you do with that at the table? 
stops being explained in the books. And then eventually you get to the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide, where they don't teach you how to run a dungeon. They don't teach you how to key a dungeon. In fact, they don't even have in the Dungeon Master's Guide a dungeon map with numbers on it to show you what that looks like. So literally all the skills required to create a dungeon, key a dungeon, uh, and run a dungeon, none of that is explained in the Dungeon Master's Guide anymore. And one of the reasons that they've kind of gotten away with that is that, well, we all know how to run a dungeon, right? But do we? I mean, it's not like that's something we're born with. The community knows how to run dungeons because D&D taught us all how to run dungeons back in the 80s. And then a lot of people learn from like their dungeon masters or from published adventures. But that's an oral tradition that begins to decay over time. And you can actually see that on the DM skills, for example. Um, you can see a number of modules being published by people on the DM skills where you'll discover that, oh, here's this dungeon scenario. Why aren't there any numbers on the map? Why are the rooms not keyed? They're just are like a running paragraph description of the dungeon in a narrative form. And it's because, you know, it's not their fault. It's that the Dungeon Master's Guide didn't teach them. So, so yes, the reason this book needs to exist, particularly these opening chapters of the book needs to exist, is because the Dungeon Master's Guide just isn't doing its job. So you've mentioned examples there. So I'd be interested to know if you've got examples in the book. It's one of my one of my bugbears, of which there are many, is <laughs> things in books quite often you get examples of the rules or example of play, which comes quite up early. And then the example of play they give you doesn't bear any relation to the game that is in front of you. <laughs> that is a pet peeve of mine as well. And it and it doesn't particularly feel like it's telling you anything. It just seems to be like a story. It doesn't even it almost feels like a Marvel movie in a way, and that there's all this great tradition. You know, we've got decades of great comic books. And instead of using those great stories, they invented a new one, kind of like as a simulacrum of uh, an assassin's version of what a good story can be. And that's almost what those sort of constructed examples can feel like. So, have you got uh, examples in your book of how you GM or what what that would look like in dialogue terms or in some other kind of form? I do actually. I talked about the, the you know dwelling entirely in the first fifty pages of the book here, but the the opening chapter where I'm kind of like introducing role playing games in case somebody does pick the book up and just literally has no idea what the heck this is all about. It just looks cool, um, which it does. Role playing games look cool. <laughs> so there is an example of play in there, and that example of play, like you see, one of my pet peeves is like examples of play that don't actually resemble how things happen at the actual game table. So the example of play that I use. Uh, in the book is actually taken directly from one of my one of my games. Um, one of the things I've done for several years now is that I use a uh, a live scribe pen to record the audio of my game sessions. And the live scribe pens actually have a camera in the tip of them, and so it will simultaneously record the audio at the table and also what I'm writing down on the page in front of me so i can then afterwards in their program i can like click on the words i was writing and hear what we were saying at that time which is insanely useful for keeping notes uh for a session but it also means i can go back and actually like listen to to actual examples from a session so i was able to kind of look around and be like where is a good example of actual play that is actual play that i can use for the game and so I actually pulled one from an actual game session and used that as this sort of initial example of play. And what I was looking for was specifically something that would be representative of actual play at the table, but also would show off different um, aspects and angles of what the GM is actually doing at the table. And then the last thing I did as part of that was in addition to just the pure transcript, um, 
I actually like interject in additional commentary explaining to someone who has no idea how any of this works, what the GM is doing. So for example, uh, so for example, let me see if I can find a quick one here. Um, so for example, there's a place here where one of the players says, um, how long have they been dead? And the GM calls for a, a wisdom medicine check. And then the player says, I got a 17 on my wisdom medicine check. And then I have a little note that says, wisdom is a different ability score from intelligence and medicine is a different skill from arcana, which we discussed earlier in the text. Different characters will have different ability scores and be proficient in different skills. Figuring out which mechanics to use is an important part of making a good ruling, which I'd also talked about earlier, obviously. But those little interjections are about like, this is an example of play, but I'm also going to like explain, explain what's going on in the GM's head and also what the basic principles of play are here so that you can begin understanding what your role is as a game master. I was um, chatting to someone, it was many years ago now, but it was when the indie RPG scene had really started to explore. Certainly in the UK, there's a group called Collective Endeavour who did uh, a lot of things like Duty and Honor and Contenders and Dead of Night and a bunch of other stuff. But uh, Rich Dots, who wrote uh, Umlaut Game of Metal, which has too many umlauts in it, uh, <laughs> he, he was asking me at the time, like, what, that stuff that you do that makes you a good gem, like, what is it? Because I think a lot of those indie games at that point were trying to, like, describe how to run the, that specific game rather than generic game. But to run this particular game, contenders, you're a down-and-out boxer looking for one last fight. So how would, how would I run that specific game? And, and what do you need to make that happen? I find it really difficult to kind of express what I'd learned over several decades of GMing and things that just did naturally. So like, how hard was it for you to kind of go back and think, go back to basics and all the rest of it and think, where are my building blocks? Because for me now, when I think of GMing, it's just a melange of my experience of playing. And I, I couldn't, it would be a, a, a real effort for me to let's put it that way to break it down into individual building blocks to then build it back up again. Well, I have I have the advantage in writing the book that I have been doing this work at the Alexandrian for like over a decade now. So a lot of that's been stuff I've been thinking about and internalizing for, like I say, over a decade. Um, the one of the key insights I had in doing that work was when I when I came to the concept of a scenario structure, and it's something that that I think isn't something that at least prior to me talking about this, we didn't really think of too much in the RPG space, but like a dungeon, for example, is, is a scenario structure. And there is a specific set of things that you prep and a specific set of ways that you use the things that you prep at the game table. And that structure is how you build a dungeon. Right. And once you have that understanding that. So like, let me back up. So for many, many, many years in RPG manuals, and even today you'll see this, where people will be like, well, what does the GM do? And the, or what does the, what do the players do? And the answer is, well, the players can, can say anything they want to do. And then the GM, you know, responds to that. And that's true. And it is what makes a role-playing game really fantastic, but it's a little bit of an oversimplification and kind of like glosses over, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, how do you draw an owl? Well, you know, draw an owl, you've skipped over most of the steps there that actually go into drawing an owl, right? Because like, and the example I draw for this is like, well, think about like running a dungeon, for example. We all know what running a dungeon looks like because we, for the most part, most of the listeners of this podcast have probably internalized that process over the years. But there's nothing about that, that that scenario structure that originates with Dave Arneson in his basement in St. Paul, 
1972. There's nothing about that structure which is inherent to how you necessarily need to resolve that. You could have so if you have a player say, I want to go into I want to go into the the grotto of doom, you would be like, Oh, I'll pull up the dungeon crawl stuff and I'll do a dungeon crawl. But you could just as easily as a game master say, Okay, give me a dungeoneering check. And they're like, roll. 23 and you're like oh cool you killed 18 goblins and got 170 gold pieces of treasure and that's weird it feels weird to be that but there's nothing wrong about that and there's plenty of activities in the game world that we do in fact often resolve that way so why do we use these different structures and once you realize that you are making a choice about what structure to use to resolve and prep and all of these things then you can begin looking at these other things like how do heists work how would an urban crawl work how do we actually run adventures in the wilderness depending on why we're in the wilderness to begin with and when you start thinking in terms of that structure it becomes a lot easier to unpack your instinct and explain what you're actually doing to someone that you're trying to teach so out there in the in the world at the moment there's an awful lot especially for D, there's a lot of published adventures and that does probably doesn't actually mean much anymore does it because everybody can publish stuff now but there's um there's always been uh, a huge catalog of adventures for dungeons and dragons surely just thumbing through a lot of those would get you to where you want to be or just playing in those but the the sense that i get from from reading the alexandrian and from long conversations with gaz is that Scenarios are really difficult to write, really, really difficult to write, because they have to sort of simultaneously explain what they're doing at the same time as they're telling you what they're doing at the same time as a lot of other things that are going on. And core books are no different from that. So is it is it perhaps, you know, perhaps we're just being a bit unfair on people. It's just really difficult to get this stuff across to a reader. I think what I will say is that I think it's very difficult to do a module or to do this if you don't understand uh, structure, the scenario structure that you're working with. And so like I talked about how I've had this sort of slow atrophying of describing dungeons and how dungeons work over mm -hmm. the course of the history of D&D, for example. But if you if you go back, then you can go back and you go, okay, well, what, what are the scenario structures that a typical D&D, a typical game master, not just D&D game master, but any game master has? What scenario structures do they actually have to work with when they're trying to, to prep an adventure and run an adventure? And simultaneously, like not just the, the game masters, but also the designers writing these adventures. And for the most part, historically, what we've talked about is that they have a dungeon because D&D taught them how to run a dungeon. They probably know how to run a mystery in the sense that there's a scene and there's a clue that points to the next scene. Although most people's understanding of how the mystery works is not terribly robust. So those tend to fail in kind of spectacular ways for many people. So you've got a dungeon and you have maybe a mystery that doesn't work all that well for a lot of game masters. And then you have a railroad. You have a structure in which you say, I need to, I'm going to prep a plot of things that are going to happen. A happens, then B happens, then C happens. And then I'm just going to force the players to do those things. And when those are your only structures and you need to publish an adventure, it becomes very difficult to publish a successful adventure because either you can publish a dungeon and there are many, many, many successful dungeons that work great at the table because it's a solid scenario structure to build around. You can publish a mystery. Uh, Call of Cthulhu has a long record of doing these, but because people's understanding of mysteries tends to be a little bit atrophied, they tend to 
collapse back into railroads anyways. And then you have railroads. And the, the trick with a railroad is that you need to be able to force the PCs to do the thing that you've predetermined that they're going to do, right? And the way you do that is by, by basically building walls so they can't escape the path that you built for them. And particularly in D&D, one of the difficulties you run into is that D&D wasn't designed to necessarily stop the PCs from doing things. As they level up, they keep getting more and more powerful yeah. abilities. So like, you know, you can put them in a dungeon. You can say, okay, well, this is great. I can just like have room A has a door to room B, has a door to room C, has a door to room D, and they have to do the rooms in that order until they get a teleport spell or a scry spell or the ability to like walk ethereally through the walls or any number of other abilities the DND gives you. And so if you're trying to prep a railroad, it becomes very difficult to prep those adventures. But in my experience, if you have a structure that works like a dungeon, for example, and you just stick to the structure, then it can be very easy to publish a successful adventure and even very easy to tell the, to tell the reader, to tell the game master, this is what this material is and this is how you're supposed to use it. Mm. Yeah, the, the, the best ones that I've ever seen, obviously I can't think of an example now, but they have those kind of designer notes in them. And, mm -hmm. it's, and it's almost like, you know, this is a, just a bit of a luxury that we should put some footnotes in or some sidebars, sidebars that aren't just like, you know, this is the history of the ogre's family going back 300 years, but <laughs> this is why there's an ogre here and this is how you can handle it if he breaks down or runs away or negotiates, whatever. That kind of advice, though, is like rare, isn't it? It, it yeah. seems to be here's the location or here's the event or here's the, mm -hmm. the plot point or whatever, and you turn the page for the next one. Right, and I think to some extent it's just because people don't know how to prep the adventure in the first place. Mm -hmm. Over at Atlas Games, where I'm the RPG developer at Atlas Games, as you know, um, we published a series of adventures for the, the feng shui action role-playing game. And one of these was called uh, Burning Dragon, and it's an adventure that was designed by Jonathan Kilstring. I worked with him as the developer, and we kind of went back and forth on, on developing the adventure. And Burning Dragon is this really cool idea Jonathan had to have a kung fu adventure set at a Burning Man-like outdoor festival, but it is actually like in the Gobi Desert in, in Asia. It, it, it's full of, of martial arts, basically, and, and <laughs> evil demons and the like, and and hyper-intelligent cyber gorillas that you need to fight. It's a lot of fun. But one of the things Jonathan was struggling with was, you know, it's this huge festival. So the PCs arrive at the festival, and then how do I present this huge, chaotic festival in a way that the players can interact with it, but also that the GM can run it? And so uh, what I, what my role with that was to try and figure out what is the actual structure that we can use? What do we prep? And how does the GM use that prep at the table? And so we came up with a festival scenario structure that said, okay, well, we need to prep is the we'll break the festival into districts. We'll be able to key content to each of these districts. And then we'll be able to have a procedure that will let the GM bring that festival to life over several days while the PCs can, can navigate and explore the festival in ways that make sense to them as characters and as players. Um, and that took extra work. We had to like figure that structure out. But once we had it, we could then explain that structure in just a couple of pages to the GM saying, again, this is this is what's here in the adventure and this is how you use it. And then Jonathan was able to fill that structure with a really, if I'm going to, you know, if I say so myself, a really fantastic adventure that he wrote, um, just filled with a ton of really great stuff. 
And what was really great about the adventure too, you know, we had a page count that we had to hit. And when we were trying to, when, when we when we were first be like, okay, well, we'll try and force the PCs to do this. We had to spend a lot of word count and a lot of pages figuring out how to force them to go places. And once we had a simple structure, it was again, here's a couple of pages explaining how to use this material, but then we could put even more cool stuff into the same page count while leaving the players free to do to literally do whatever they wanted to do. So that's the power of structure. And that's really somewhat about what this book is about, is, is sharing a bunch of these structures and to get GMs in general, but also specifically new GMs, thinking in terms of structure, thinking in terms of what do I prep and how specifically do I use it. I'm minded to think of Radiant Citadel as an example. That's a recent DD book which we've looked at. It's, it's good stuff, you know. I don't, don't want to knock it at all. We had Adjit on the on the show. It's great to speak to him. But um, for uh, our sister endeavor, Unconventional Gems, which is a series of actual players we're doing on YouTube now, we're going to probably run one of those scenarios again because the first one's got it's got a typical it's got a festival in it, like you mentioned, and it, but it's got a structure that's quite linear, and the way it's written, the events are probably written in the wrong order. So the spoilers for anybody who's going to watch the YouTube, we'll get we'll get a guy to run it, and he's going to reorder it, so it'll make a lot more sense. So he's all the same words, just not necessarily in that order. Well, it's funny you say that because I actually wrote a review of Journeys of the Radiant Citadel for for the Alexandrian for my website, and I talked about that specific adventure. The um, what with the shrimps in? Yeah, with, with <laughs> the giant shrimp. Like a Friends episode, the one with the shrimps. That's right. <laughs> Salted Legacy. That's what we called. Oh. The one with the shrimps is better than that. <laughs> <laughs> the one with the, that would actually be a really great title. The one with the shrimps. So the one with the shrimps. Yeah, I had, I had the same observation. That yeah, the the sequencing of how the adventure runs is is backwards, and it makes the adventure less interesting. Spoilers for those who are about to get into it. But if I remember correctly, like you start out and you you're at the market for un, for for reasons, and then like some stuff happens, and the PCs are supposed to start investigating, but they can't investigate because nobody at the market trusts them. So they have to go play in these market games that then unlocks the ability to investigate. And a that doesn't make any sense because they got hired by people in the market, but then nobody in the market trusts them. That doesn't actually like yeah, one or the other. But the other thing, too, is that then the market games just become this annoyance for the players because it's just like this weird impediment. But if you make it so that they're there to play the market games and then there's this like sabotage stuff that's going on around the market games, everything becomes more interesting. So right. it's interesting that I'm not alone in seeing the the sequencing order there. Yeah, I think it's something that me and Beg did quite a lot when we read adventures is immediately go, but why? Why would that happen? Why wouldn't it be why wouldn't it be this way around and that kind of thing? So uh I, I did have a question somewhere at the start of that, but I think I've lost it. I'll try and try and backpedal <laughs> to it. But I think it was around advice for improvisation or for uh resequencing on the fly. So even if you picked mm. a railroad structure or something like that, and then the players refuse to abide by your walls that you put up or whatever else it might be and do something else. Have you got a section that kind of like helps people out when to, to enable players without trying to fight them or trying to push them down a railroad, because that's when the railroad becomes bad, right? When you're right. insisting players do something they don't want to do necessarily. Yeah, so it, 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 this gets to the heart of, of some of the difficulties I had in writing the book, actually, which is that it actually took me a while to figure out what the authorial voice of the book should be. Because if you read the Alexandrian, a lot of the Alexandrian is explicitly aimed at uh, people who've been GMing for years. And even my YouTube channel, for example, like I do Advanced Game Mastery is the name of the video series that I do on there. And it's aimed at people who are looking for that next step. 
who have experience and looking to take the next step. And so you'll end up with things where I'll say things like, like at the beginning of my video on running mysteries, I'll be like, we've all been there before. Well, <laughs> if I'm writing a book for somebody who's never GM before and is trying to figure it out, no, I haven't. So <laughs> I had to like really figure out like, what is the actual like, you know, rhetorical approach that the book is going to take. And then I had, this is a bit of a tangent, but then I had the interesting consequence there, which is another game I, I've just, uh, I was the co-designer of, was the second edition of Magical Kitties Save the Day. And that game also has a lot of advice for new GMs, but it's designed for five to 12-year-olds. And so as I began moving away from my Alexandrian voice into, for new GMs voice, I kept slipping into, like, aimed at five-year-olds voice. And I was <laughs> like, no, that's not what this book is either. It's 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 designed for adults. And so it took me a while. But one of the things I was really thinking hard about is like, what is the nature of this book? So a lot of the Alexandrian oftentimes will be like, here's something terrible that you've seen adventures all the time, and here's how you fix it. And I decided that the approach for this book was going to be much more about, I'm going to show them how to do it right and, and hope that that sets them on the right course. And so I don't actually spend a lot of time talking about things like, I actually don't mention railroading really at all in the book, for example, because if I show you how to do it correctly, if I show you how to make rulings correctly, if I show you how to structure adventures correctly, you will never railroad because it will never be a thing that you need to fall back on. I often describe railroading as being a, a broken technique trying to solve a broken adventure. You are trying to force the PCs to do something because you have an, which is bad, because you are trying to fix an adventure that doesn't work unless they do a specific thing. So like, it's just failure all the way down, right? So to get back to your question, it's not something I specifically talk about in the book in terms of how to avoid those railroads. It's more about showing them the correct way. Now, in terms of how I actually do that in practice, I do have articles on the Alexandrian talking about that. And I really just think of it as like when you often read these adventures that are designed as railroads because the creators don't have a better option, right? The, there's two scenarios, one of which is that it's just a bad scenario. You know, 90% of everything is crap. We talked about that earlier, right? Yeah. And if that's the case, then what does it matter? It's, it's crap. Don't don't run it. Like, find find something better, right? The other option, though, the, the B option, is to say, well, th this actually is really cool. It's just the structure is wrong. And so what I'll do at that point is I'll say, okay, well, I'm going to look at the elements of this adventure. And I'm going to say, how can I take these elements? And then what structure is appropriate for this, this adventure? So, for example, one of the things I do on the Alexandrian is I do remixes of published adventures. And sometimes those remixes are just like a lot of extra cool new material for the adventure. And other times I'm looking at adventures that I think have broken structures, but are really cool adventures. And one example of that is the Descent into Avernus campaign for uh, for Dungeons and Dragons. And as published, that adventure is just a railroad followed by another railroad, followed by you can choose one of two railroads, and then it's railroads. <laughs> it's, it's railroads all the way down. But it's a really cool campaign. It's, it's, there's a lot of really cool, awesome characters and themes and lore and locations, just a ton of cool stuff. And so, you know, I looked at that adventure and I said, okay, well, how, how would you fix it? And the answer was, okay, well, that first railroad is supposed to be an investigation into murders that are happening in Baldur's Gate. So rip out rip out the plot, rip out the railroad, throw that away, and use a node-based mystery 
structure, which is discussed in So You Want to Be a Game Master. Use the appropriate structure. And you do that, and you're like, oh, I can use 90, 95% of what's written on the page. I just need a structure that actually lets me use it in active play with the players rather than trying to like railroad them down a path. And then everything becomes easier and also cooler. And I say, okay, well, then what's the next part? Well, the next part is you're in this, this uh, city that's been dragged down into hell. Okay, well, what structure do we have for that? Well, you could actually use like a, a point crawl to move through the ruined city, another structure that's in So You Want to Be a Game Master. Uh, so we can do that. And then the next the next railroad, the choice of railroads and descend into Avernus. Well, the book itself says that, oh, this is the part where the PCs get to go explore Avernus. And then the book is like, but we can't let them do that because we don't know how to do that. So here's a railroad instead. And I go, well, what if we just let them explore Avernus? And so the remix goes, okay, well, what's a good, what's a good format for exploring uh, a wilderness, even a wilderness in hell. And the answer is a hex crawl. That's what hex crawls are designed for. There's another structure described and in, in, in gone into detail about how to prep and how to run it. And so I just reprepped that material as a hex crawl. Um, and, uh, uh, and and so that, that's basically the approach is you take the railroad, which is a broken structure, and then you restructure the material using a scenario structure that's actually robust and that actually works at the table. What do you think it is that's uh, that's stopping people GMing? There's going to be it's a golden time for new people to enter the hobby, and certainly through the vector of D and D and and live streaming and what have you. What what, what do you think are the obstacles that are in people's minds? Because they must be perceived obstacles, and some of them will be real obstacles. What, what's stopping people GMing? Do you, is it that it looks too hard? I I think that's a lot of it. Um, I think there's two things, and one of them is that. The first impediment to jamming for some people is they can't find players. Yeah, true. And that that can be difficult. And some of that delves back into the perceived difficulty of it all. But one of the reasons is that is that we have this perception that the the correct way or the only way to run a role-playing game is a big, long campaign where you and a bunch of friends get together and play like 20 or 30 or 40 sessions of a game uh, over the course of a year or two years or whatever. And I love those games. But... When that's the only way you can think of to play role-playing games, it's really difficult to find new players because particularly players who've never played before. If I walked up to you and said, hey, here's a thing you've never done before. Do you want to get together every Saturday for the next year and do it? You'd be like, I need to know more before I commit like that much time to something, right? So I, you know, one thing that I talk about in the book is actually how to recruit and how to find players. Um, the so I talk the first half of the book is all these structures. The back half is actually a section called extra credit, and it's a bunch of different chapters dealing with stuff that can really apply to games in general. And one of those is how you create your campaign, and within that is also a discussion of how you can find and recruit players. And one of the things I say in there is recruit with one shots. If you're looking for players for the first time, don't try and sell them on the idea of, of a 10 or 20 or 40 session campaign, a year-long commitment. Say, hey, do you want to get together on Saturday and we can play play a game? And that, you know, just play the game, just play a one-shot game. And then if they like it, great. And maybe they'd be interested in getting together every Saturday. And then you can then you can move on to those longer campaigns. So I think that's the first thing is that some people don't GM because they just don't have anyone to GM for. Uh, and so I think finding out how to recruit players is good for that. But the, I think the other thing is just the perceived complexity of it. And I think there's, there's a few things that go into that. And one of them is is the rule system. When you look at D&D and somebody tells you, okay, so you've never played a role-playing game before, but here are three big, thick rule books. You know, there's 800, 900 pages of rules. You need to read these first and master them. 
and then you can run a game. Like that's that's a tall order. Like any any activity, any activity is like read 900 pages and then you can do it. That's a lot. Um, fortunately, like, you know, so when people are like, Ooh, what, what, what recommendations you got? Like, well, the first recommendation is pick up a starter set instead or pick up a different role-playing game that isn't 900 pages of, of reading before you can start running it, right? So that's part of it. The other thing, too, is that, you know, coming back to railroading, coming back to that idea of the players tell you what you need, what they do, and then you need to provide an answer. Um, you need to be in control of an entire world. That can be that that is daunting. That is like that's an entire world. That's a that's a big thing. But one of the things I talk about in the book is that the GM actually has a secret weapon. And that secret weapon is that they are not actually the one in the hot seat. We have this perception that the players can at any time be like, I'm going to do this unexpected thing. And then the GM has to be like, oh, no, what do I do? Uh, the reality, though, is that whenever the player says, I want to do X, the GM always has the option to say, yeah, OK, you do that. Now what? And that's the GM's secret weapon. Is it? It's actually the players who are in the hot seat. Because if the players say, I want to do X, and you have some cool idea or complication or, or something like that, absolutely do that cool idea you just had. But if you have nothing, you can always go back to, yes, you absolutely did that. Now what happens next? What do you do next? Uh, and that's the secret weapon of the GM. And once you understand that, everything kind of unlocks. Because it, you become aware that it's a lot easier to be a GM than you think. It also becomes clear that in many ways, being a GM is the same thing as being a player, that you are just there actively playing with the players. And that is both liberating and also exciting. I think this might be related, but I'll ask the question. I know it's one that, that there's been, been out a few times, and I've, I've seen it more recently as well. It's one where you need to work out what the players actually want, because they'll start asking questions that seem like non sequiturs, and you're trying to work out where they're going so that you can give mm -hmm. them the thing that they want so i don't think you got any advice on that but like this they'll be kind of like oh what's what, what's the color of the clock of the, the dragon captain i i don't know what but, but i sent a trap you're asking me this because this is leads to something else that i don't understand yet so so how do you deal with that sort of situation where you're repeatedly being asked detailed questions but you don't really understand where this is all leading it's it's kind of the same principle it's actually something i do talk about i talk about the beginning book is learn how to make a ruling and then learn how to run a room one of the key things for making a ruling is that you cannot make a ruling if you do not understand why the why the players are doing what they're doing. So if somebody's like, uh, "Can I climb up on top of a stack of boxes?" and you're like, "Okay, but I don't understand why you're doing that." Before you make a ruling about that, you should ask, "Okay, but why?" Just just ask why or like, "How are you doing that?" Um, or whatever the, whatever point you're confused about ask them to clear it up for you. Um, because until you know that, until like, if they're like, oh, I want to climb on top of these boxes because I want to get an angle to shoot this guy. And like, oh, okay, then yeah. Or you might be like, oh, well, the boxes won't do that, but you could climb up the wall over here instead. Or you could even say, oh, I'm sorry, you can actually shoot him from where you are. Like any one of those things could actually be the result there. And until you understand that, where the confusion's coming from, you can't make that ruling. And the same thing applies to like questions, like you're saying. If they're asking those questions and you don't understand why, make sure you understand why before you give the answer. An example I really like along these lines is like, imagine you're running a mystery adventure and the PCs are investigating uh, a, a body on the floor. And one of the PCs says, I'm, I'm going to go check the carpet under the window. And you're like, why are you looking at the carpet under the window? And so you might immediately jump to, there's nothing there. There's just carpet. 
But if but but you don't understand, and because you don't understand, you need to ask. You say, "What, what are you looking for over there?" And the PC and the player says, "Hey, at, well, you told us that it was raining last night at two a.m. And so, if if the murderer came in through the window after two a.m., there would be muddy footprints on the carpet." And you're like, "Oh, I hadn't thought of that, but they're right. The murder happened at three a.m. There would be muddy footprints." And then you get the ruling right. Because if in the first example, you've misled the players into thinking, oh, well, it must have happened earlier in the evening, which could be crucial for some reason. But because you understood why, you can give them the correct information. Yeah, I think a part of it comes down to almost training the players, if you will, to ask the right questions rather than... Well, and some players will get cagey too because they will have played, they will have played with GMs who want to railroad them who want to force them into doing something. And so they are honestly always trying to escape the railroad. Some players will respond by trying to escape the railroad. Others will respond by shutting down, just being like, "Whatever, man, just do it. Just do it to me. I know you're gonna you're gonna do it. Just do it." <laughs> but the ones who are resisting are constantly looking for some way to like escape the railroad, and they know that one way they can do that is by tricking the GM. And <laughs> if you can convince these players, who are frankly like they're damaged, and we need to help them, uh, like we need to invite them into games where they're not going to be. They're not going to be hurt anymore and they can heal. But then we need to build trust with them to to convince these players that I'm on your side. Like if you tell me why you want to climb the boxes, the boxes are not going to like grow spikes or turn out to be mimics. I will just be like, oh, great. Let me help you do that thing that you want to do. Mm -hmm. And and when you can convince the players and you can build that trust with the players, then I find like you say, yeah, you can absolutely train the players to to tell you why they're doing things and not just like try to pull a fast one or like or just cast things out there without any explanation yeah they're, they're trying to avoid being punished sometimes aren't they because of the gems they've had which will trip them up things but mm -hmm. and another phrase that one of the collective endeavor as it was uh neil gow he wrote gc honor and beta quarters he, he mentions a lot and that's that the gm is just another player mm -hmm. so part of that is that you're there to enjoy the game as well but also you know the players around the table should be helping the game along so they should be contributing so have you got any words around that in the book around, you know, the role that players take and the, the, the equity of the responsibility for fun around the table? I do, actually. And and like I was alluding to this a little bit earlier, which is that a phrase I come back to is the idea of active play. That, you know, we talk about railroading, what railroading is in prep is you're prepping something to enforce an outcome, to, to enforce the thing you imagined happening. And I think, you know, the strength of role-playing games and role-playing games become much more interesting is when you go to the table with the idea that instead of prepping a set of things that will happen you instead prep a set of toys that you can play with or tools that you can use whichever analogy works better and then when you're at the table you're actively playing with the players and i know that idea can feel terrifying to some game masters because you're like i have no plan it's like no no you have plans it's just that your plans aren't you're going to do these specific things. Your plan is like, wouldn't this ray gun be really cool? Uh, wouldn't this mafia boss be really cool to play with? And the other thing to keep in mind, if you feel like, oh, my goodness, how do we do that? Is the fact that the players do this every single session. So if you've ever played a role playing mm -hmm. game before, you've actively played before, right? Like players don't come to the table with their character and be like, well, Mike, tonight my, my character is going to be doing A, B, C and D. We just don't think that way. They come they come with their toy, which is their player character, and they actively play that character at the table in response to what you're giving them from the world. And that that idea of the GM being another player really factors into this in the sense that the GM brings maybe slightly more toys, 
to the table, but they're actively playing those toys as well. And that means that they're actively responding to what the players are doing in the same way that the players are actively responding to what the GM is doing. And then both of you will end up in a place that neither one of you could have anticipated and which will usually be much more awesome than anything you could have like tried to force them into to begin with or to imagine beforehand. Yeah, sure. Uh, I guess uh, you mentioned scenario writing. Is that part of the book as well? Like telling people how to write their scenarios and, and perhaps an adjacent, a different question is, do you tell people how to run other people's scenarios? Yeah. Most of the book is focused on, most of the book is focused on, on writing your own scenarios. And one thing I really point out there as well is that like, look at published scenarios, like good published scenarios as an example of the structures that you can use, but don't use them as an example of how you should write your own scenarios. Because when I, as a professional game designer, for example, am writing a scenario, I am not just including the elements in the game world that need to be there. I am needing to communicate my specific vision to you as a GM. And because you can't read my mind, I need to do those things. But if I'm writing for myself, it's already in my head. So I just need to write a reminder. Uh, and to some extent, I can also just trust my creative instincts to realize my creative vision because it's it's my creative vision. And like, so overall, most of the book is focused on this is specifically what you need to prep for this type of adventure. And then also constantly being like, but, you know, don't don't over prep. Like, I think that's gonna be a real thing that GMs can fall into is is wasting a lot of time. Uh, over prepping an element or prepping things that they don't actually need. And I'm I'm constantly focused on make sure that whatever you're prepping, 98% of it is like aimed at getting onto the table and in front of the PC so that you, that you can all play with it together. Yeah, definitely. There is an element where you could reuse stuff though, right? So like you're saying don't over prep, and I totally agree with that. But like that, how about recycling ideas? So you've prepped a lot of toys for your session, but then only three out of the 10 get used. Like there's no harm in taking seven other toys and using them again later because no one no one would know anyway, would they? No, absolutely not. And also, like frequently, if you begin working from an aspect of, of being an active player and having game worlds that are basically like an accumulation of toys that you're playing with, the things that the players don't interact with don't go away. They're going to continue being part of the environment of the game world. Like, for example, if you design an adventure where say a node-based adventure where the PCs can kind of chart their own course through it. And it's all about a mafia boss who is creating werewolves. And so he's using werewolves as enforcers. And the PCs chart a course through there where they never go to the warehouse where there's a bunch of werewolf enforcers who are guarding a drug shipment, for example. Well, you say, okay, well, uh, and then, but they, they get to the mafia boss and they wipe the mafia boss out. Well, that's great, but they left a bunch of werewolves with drugs in a warehouse. And you can just ask yourself, what would, what's going to happen next with those werewolves with all the drugs. And that can come back at the players in any number of ways. And that's great because it also shows the consequences of their actions, which makes their choices and their actions more meaningful. And players love that. Even when terrible things happen to them as a result, they love it when they know that things they did had an impact and were meaningful. Yeah, I think it took me years to figure that one out. And I, and I suspect John Harper had a part to play in it by writing it down and making stupid people like me realise what we've been doing for ages, <laughs> is that the GM, of course, is a player. and It's just that I've got an awful lot of PCs, and they're called NPCs, or or they're factions, or they're the weather, or whatever. Um, you know, th that lonely fun of prep is play in itself, because you start moving your pieces around in response to your players. And I think the key is, 
and I'm sure you, you're bound to have mentioned this in the book, and you've certainly mentioned it on the, on your website before, is is to not take that to being an antagonist. That, that kind of an, an antagonistic vibe at the table just destroys role-playing games anyway. And I think it probably has led to some of those behaviours that we've all seen about people being you know, slightly turtling or defensive because they're just afraid they're going to get screwed by the, air quotes, evil GM, which for mm. a long time was seen as like, you know, something to aspire to. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the early days of the hobby, like, you yeah. know, decades ago now, you, you do have the fact that, like, people are coming to role-playing games from from other mediums and from other types of games, other board games, uh, video games, and the like. And in, in a lot of those, uh, up until very recently, the idea of co-op, where all the players are actually on the same team, wasn't really a thing. Like, the, the first co-op game, the first co-op board game was, I think, Arkham Horror in the 80s, and then, and then it was, like, another decade before Nizia did... Uh, Lord of the Rings, and only like in the last 15, 20 years has there been a huge number of co-op games that exist. So outside of role-playing games, that idea of co-op is really something that is that's very recent mm. at best. Uh, and so I think a lot of people are like, well, well, my role as the GM must be to win. And of course, like you say, that's a terrible place for the GM to be coming from because it's not really what the goal or the agenda of a role-playing game is. And it's not hard to win, really, is it? Right. Well, when you can, yeah, when you control everything and can put your thumb on any on any balance wheel, like that's not that's not Drop another elephant. Always have bigger elephants. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's put me in mind of things like uh, some games have fate points or bennies or whatever you want to call them, but like one of those things will be spend one of these so that you can add something into the story. Whereas I do feel like being able to add something into the story is things players should want to do, be encouraged to do anyway, and then. Similarly, I don't know how you feel about this or whether you've covered it, but things like experience points, certainly some systems have, thinking like White Wolf games and some of the free league ones have things where it's like you've got to justify why you get experience points at the end of a session. The GM gets to decide if you were interesting enough or if you brought in the <laughs> correct background or whatever it is. That that all seems to fail into feed into that old school kind of way of gaming and not being more kind of everybody, experience points for everybody at the end and you know advance and grow and bring whatever you want into the story as long as it's cool and fits the vibe and everybody at the table agrees. So, have you got any words around that? You know, the thing about the thing about experience points is that they can be used for a number of different things. I think that where experience points are weakest is when they do become uh you know I think I think you can either have experience points where they're just sort of a regular handout, whether it's every session or or whatever the case may be, every adventure. Um there are there are places where you can use XP specifically to focus the players on certain uh, certain default actions or default goals that you want them to focus on. Uh, you know, it all goes all the way back to like 1974 D&D where, where treasure was XP, where when you got gold pieces in the dungeon, you would get XP for that. Why was that significant? Well, because that means that you were telling the players through the mechanics of the game, you're supposed to go into a dungeon and look for treasure, particularly at a time when people were like, what's a dungeon? You know, like, <laughs> it's not like that was the thing that existed before 1972. So so you can use the mechanics in that way. I think John Harper does a good job of this in Blades in the Dark, for example, where there are the questions at the end of a session, but it's not the GM from on high being like, yes, your role playing was worthy of a reward today. The questions are all aimed at, did you bring a character trait into play? Did you, you know, do a heist? Remember the games about heists, you should do those things. So like that, those are the types of things where I think you can use XP as a focusing device. Um but I think, like you say, like any place where the GM is like, I shall judge whether you are worthy, that always comes across as a little like, what are we doing here? Yeah. 
And uh, another technique that we like, I think we may have brushed against this in the previous conversations we've had, but I'm going to bring it back because it's reincorporation. So it's uh, uh, it, like bringing those toys that you've used in previous sessions, like the wheels back. That that's something again, I think, to be encouraged. Not to talk about that in the book, but you know, it's good when players do it as well when they remember something or to to give John Harper more more credits in a gun when <laughs> playing that. I had a, an incidental NPC who was the scribe. After I think the second island, the players have really messed it up and everything was just disastrous. And the scribe like, told, told the true story. <laughs> and I just became a recurring character then. And I kept bringing him in and his, his stories got like more ridiculous as we went on. But he, he became a real character and an antagonist for the for the players, but which they embraced. Yeah, how about reincorporation and uh, bringing things back and that kind of idea of if there's an NPC behind something, it's always it's going to be an NPC that we've already met, don't introduce new ones, that kind mm-hmm. of feel. You know, that, that reincorporation is so important. I do talk about that in several different places. I don't think there's a specific chapter in the book specifically about reincorporation, but it is a pervasive idea that you can find throughout. Uh, I think also like like one thing I talk about in the book specifically is that idea of like the minor MPC who hits. I talk about organizing large social events and the the scenario structure you can use for like running an effective, very large party in the book. And one of the pieces of advice I give there is like, you're going to put together like 15 or 20 NPCs who are all circulating through this big social event and the the PCs will interact with them in various ways. And what you are going to discover as you do that is that some of those NPCs are going to hit and either because the players like them or because you're inspired and you're really feeling it and therefore the players are reacting to that some of those NPCs are going to hit. Uh, bring those back keep you know read that read the room and bring back the stuff that's working um because and 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 i've I've seen this you know there's times i've there's many times i've run the same adventure multiple times for different groups right and it'll be the exact same adventure i'm the same guy running it but different npcs will hit and then where the story goes as a result of where those where those hits happen which characters do the pcs particularly hit it off with which ones are the players most interested in the whole campaign can shift on those kinds of questions Hmm. Yeah, I think um, I, my example for that one, I know exactly what you're talking about. I can really relate because I've, I've run or tried to run Power Behind the Throne for Warhammer hmm. uh, multiple times. Uh, uh, it was a fantastic adventure to read. <laughs> for a GM to actually run that beast, I mean, they gave away NPC cards with it and so on, but uh, these things are so beautifully realized, or every character in it is one that could be that, that NPC that hits. And I think, if anything, they all end up hitting. They're all so great that you want to go and speak <laughs> to them again. And I, I can't keep control of my accents, let, or let alone their names <laughs> or where they are or what they've been doing. I mean, I'm really, really pleased that you, you've hit on that because there's – I know we started this conversation talking about dungeons, but outside of a dungeon, when you don't have those walls around you, I remember feeling quite frightened going out into wildernesses in my first games, and, and cities were the hardest of all. Uh, because just because of the sheer amount of NPCs and interactions that could happen and alleyways to go down. Um, yeah, it was like a kind of a weird agoraphobia as a GM that you can get if you spent a long time in the dungeon beforehand. Completely makes sense. I remember like, so when I was that 10 year old figuring out how to run games for the first time, basic set, 1983 Frank Mincer basic set teaches me exactly how to run a dungeon. I run several dungeons. I, I, I'm getting it. I'm designing my own dungeons, having a grand time. Then I pick up the expert set, the sequel that teaches you all about wilderness adventures. And I remember very vividly the first time I ran a, a wilderness adventure because I tried to run it like a dungeon. And yeah. I was like, you guys are standing at the edge of a forest. And I'm like, okay, we'll go in the forest. And I was like, okay, you go about 20 feet into the forest. There are trees. What do you do now? We keep walking. Okay, you go like another 20 feet and 
there are a bunch of trees. And about this point, I was like, I don't get it. I'm obviously missing something, but like, <laughs> I'm in it. Let's let's go. And it was, of course, a complete disaster. And that's, again, comes back to scenario structures. You're talking about cities and how difficult those are. I want to kind of touch on that because uh, one of the one of the places where there's going to be a lot of new material uh, in this book compared to something that's been on the Alexandrian previously is the urban adventures section, uh, which specifically looks at cities because cities can be daunting because like there's so much like there's so much stuff going on in a city. How do you how do you structure that? How do you manage it? And so there's there's a couple different structures that I give there for like. What do you again? What do you prep for the city, and then how do you actually run the city? What is that step by step procedure that you can follow? And like uh, to give spoilers for the book, the thing I tell you to do is to prep districts and to prep landmarks in those districts and so forth, and have some random encounters if you're going for a full fledged city. And then I give a little procedure I call the life in the city. And when the PCs want to do something in a city, it almost always involves them going somewhere, right? Going to a location. So you look at that location and you name the district that it's in and you point at the map. You say, okay, you're going over here to this location in the docks, for example. You mention a landmark that is in that district that they pass on their way to wherever it is that they're going. You then make a scenic encounter check using the tables you've prepped for that to like generate a little little life in the city element to it. And then you can describe the location that they arrive at. And that's a really simple, that's a really simple structure. But what I've discovered at the table is if, if you follow that simple structure, sort of the core of the interaction with the city, what happens over time as the PCs move throughout the city is that you are building up their vision of the city and keeping the city as a living place, a living dynamic place they're interacting with. And then you can build other things on top of that. So I talk about how downtime can be run in the city. And then on top of that, how you can run factions in the city with faction downtime actions that develop the city life and give the PCs things to to react to. And then I talk about on top of that, uh, what does a full-fledged urban crawl look like where you're not just moving to the city, but you're actually like engaging with the city in a very specific way, in a kind of deep way. And so there's these different layers of city life. And I, I think it'll be a really rewarding section for a lot of people uh, because I completely understand the agoraphobia that you're talking about. Cool. Cannot wait to read. 500 pages, you say. Sign <laughs> me up. How, how can people sign up for this massive tome of wisdom? Well, like I say, it's coming from Macmillan and Page Street Publishing, and it's getting mainstream distribution. So you're going to find this in Barnes & Noble in your local bookshop and all of those places, Amazon Online, for example. Mm -hmm. So any place that you buy you know, your mainstream books, you'll be able to find this book as well. And you can pre-order it now. Um, it's available on Amazon, uh, both domestically here in the United States, but also internationally. I know people have seen it on Amazon Germany, Amazon UK, Amazon Australia, uh, both physical and digital copies available for pre-order now. I will make sure to include some links in the show notes to help you for that. Well, we've, we've got many of the pages we could talk about, but I know it's that time is against us. So one of the key things of being a good gym, of course, is sticking to your convention slot and not running over. So we should, we should definitely pay attention to that. So thanks very much for coming back on, Justin. It's fascinating stuff, as always. I'm sure we could talk for another hour if you want me to. Well, I'll just have to come back sometime. Exactly. He's the only answer. <laughs> and uh, thanks, everyone, in Leicester land. Uh, thanks to our patrons. He help us pay the internet costs and anybody who shares, likes, retweets, all the rest of it. Be sure to head over to the Alexandrian to get more free hits and tips there from his work. And also you can look up Fengshree and other great games that Atlas produces. Until next time, dear listeners, bye-bye. Thank you very much.